0: Today is the 25th of November, 2014, and this is episode 165. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future.
1: This is Andreas Antonopoulos, and this is another episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's show, I bring to the show again my good friend Chris Ellis, who has been a guest on the show many times before. is also a producer of the Walt Crypto Network, participant in the Bitcoin Group, one of the founders of Feathercoin, as well as a well-known commentator and multi-talented project starter, and stir all around the uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community. Chris, welcome to the show. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. The topic for today's show is a look at revisionist history, especially the revisionist history around innovation, and more specifically, how that revisionist history is now being repeated in the area of cryptocurrencies, or rather how we should look at the present of cryptocurrencies With a better informed view of the past of innovation based on what actually happened rather than the revisionist history we usually learn as cryptocurrency is developing rapidly and we see bitcoin erupt on the scene in 2008 and over the next five years it has become a topic that is being broadly discussed among mainstream media there's been a significant backlash we've also seen a lot of fear-mongering, and scare stories from mainstream media. And for many of the participants in this space, this can feel very intimidating. So what really encouraged me to uh, look at this in a bit more detail is this idea that we have that innovation and invention, especially disruptive innovation, disruptive invention, happens in a way that is rather smooth and glorious and glamorous. And this is the essence of revisionist history. As examples to this, I was recently visiting the Make Affair conference in Detroit. And just prior to giving a presentation on Bitcoin, I sat through a 20-minute documentary in the Ford Museum at the ford factory in detroit that was a history of the automobile and you know what was really interesting about that was that this was a glamorized history that really removed all of the difficulties from the equation that hid all of the difficult times the strong reactions the negative press the incumbents fight back and all of the other things and presented this vision of the history of the automobile as if uh, the invention of the automobile was greeted with rounds of applause by all involved. Ford was raised the status of hero. The world was never the same again. And this is the kind of history that you see in other inventions, the history of flight, for example, with the Wright brothers, Thomas Edison and electricity. All of these histories present massively disruptive innovation and invention, arriving in the world to rounds of applause. And guess what, it didn't really happen that way. So what do you think, Chris? What do you see as revisionist history, and and how do we address that issue as we're working in the cryptocurrency space and facing a very real and often disheartening backlash from the media? very negative stories and, of course, a probably even stiffer fight with incumbents and the institutions that they can gain support from to fight these technologies, just like every previous round of disruptive innovation.
2: I would say that we have to begin with education. And education, for me, is mostly inspiration and, of course, is in part dissemination. I hate to start off with Nazis. I hate to take it down to that level straight away, but perhaps we can go through hell and, and and make our way back up again. Hitler said that the people would never ask the victor if he was telling the truth. And we have to change as individuals and the way that we we raise our, our young people, our, our children, because if you are just being Taught how to be taught in a school, and if you're just being given rote learning exercises, it starves out that very human capacity for wonder and curiosity. Being open to surprise, exogenous events, sometimes referred to as black swan events. Now, Nassim Taleb is, is an absolute authority on this. He um, makes, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, um, his book, uh, Black Swan and Fooled by Randomness, where he essentially is saying that if we don't give ourselves or tell ourselves the right stories about the past we don't have a future because we're always going to be tripping over ourselves and in fact it was also Satoshi Nakamoto of course at the end of the the abstract says that you know people have to be nodes have to be able to to join and and leave the network at will and still trust that the network will operate as expected whilst they are the other way now the way he achieves this is by this what, what he calls the single history? What we are producing here is a distributed timestamp server, a distributed database across space and time that allows for symmetry of information across a distance, such that you cannot have these kind of information silos where you know one person, or one small group of people will have access to the full record, and then it's a case of projecting a narrative or a theatre, almost like to be platonic, almost like the shadows on the wall, right? Robert Harrison um Stanford puts it really, really well. He has this wonderful thought experiment. Think of it about it as projective geometry. You're sitting in a cinema. There's a 3D cube behind you, and a light shining on the cube casts a two-dimensional shadow on the wall. If all you do is sit there and look at the two-dimensional shadow, you'll never get back to the complexity of the three-dimensional cube. You can only get from the three-dimensional cube to the two-dimensional shadow, which is why, as Plato encourages us to do in the Republic, is that we are so it's supposed to stand up turn around and walk out of the cave to see the sunlight. Now, we don't have to be platonic. A lot more has happened since Plato, not least Aristotle and, and then modern philosophy, beginning with Descartes. But even Descartes has this anxiety. Yes, in fact, modern philosophy is defined by Cartesian doubt, this idea that how do I even know the world exists? So you have two opposite ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, you have this kind of Passive entertainment, let the information wash over me as I kind of sink into my sofa, eating my TV dinner with all my screens and my laptop and my phone and so on. And then at the other end, you've got this extreme anxiety of epistemology, the study of history, history, you know, recording itself, if you like, quite meta. Then this sort of Cartesian anxiety. And actually, I don't think that's fair on Descartes, but certainly the the philosophers that followed him that spent an awful lot of time. Getting very upset and anxious over the fact that we didn't have objective truth of reality. And it wouldn't really be until people like Quine and Heidegger and Husserl and Rorty in the 20th century would say, look, you just need to chill out, right? You, you don't worry about whether or not the world exists. If you are able to interact with the world around you and it's meaningful to you, you become your world existingly. That's the quote that, that Heidegger brings. That ability to function within an environment. Is very much predicated on you understanding yourself in terms of your potential, which is uniquely yours. Now, it's true that a, a good teacher, and, and I'm couching this in terms of education, I hope you don't mind, is one that is able to look into the other and understand them in a way that they don't even understand themselves, and to be able to help that person become the become the person they want to be remembered as. I suppose I sort of, you know, not, knocked around this idea a few years ago—the the future CV. You know, it was just. I kept going around to all these startup events and I was like, you know what, you you just need to, instead of your CV documenting your past, it should really be a, a journal of what you want to do in the future and get your friends to help you be accountable to your claims. And I think the problem that we've got at the moment, so that's the micro, now zoom out to the macro, you've got governments particularly in the past that have been able to create a theater, a virtual reality inside of a reality. I think I heard the quote recently that the difference between a reality and a virtual reality is the amount of information. yeah that, that you're just creating a sort of a, a cinema display that you can put in your your population to filter failure. It's sometimes referred to in the online version where you've got you only see what Twitter shows you, you only see what Facebook shows you, you only see what Google will present to you that it undermines human agency, your independence, your autonomy. I don't want to be happy most of the time. I do all kinds of things in my life to sabotage my happiness. I do want autonomy. I do want that freedom to move, to break out, that intuition, which Heidegger would call care, the care structure. The time, time is the world. Time, he believes, is the horizon from which we understand being. He wants to say something like, "Time is not what the clock says it is. Time is you deciding it's time to check the time." And I think what's desperately needed right now is almost if we take this sort of much broader view and understanding of time, rather than time being as a as a line that you know physicists talk about the arrow of time, you know, it was very reductionist or what the clock says it is. No, a clock is simply a counting device with a memory, and that memory comes via the language. If you think about what a computer is, what is a computer? Well, it's a counting device with a memory. At its most pure, and at its, at its heart, also has some other primitives as well that, that give rise to all the complexity we see. And I think what we need now is a distributed uh, time framework where any everyone's time is honoured and respected. Um, so so that you know I can independently check the history of events and i don't know how that would work right now i think it would be something like you know people going off on the internet you know Wiki, wikipedia for a start undermines the government authority on the past um, on then you bring up the, the development of the the car but also what what about you know the airplane and the telescope you know copernicus didn't didn't publish his work until you know i think it was the year of his death it didn't get published i think we have all kinds of different understandings of, of what really went on and particularly with the wright brothers you know their innovation every anyone any fool could get a plane in the air that wasn't the they what they did is they defined success for themselves they didn't they they, they marched their own beat they didn't let other people decide what success would look like for them. I think uh, if I'm right in re- recalling, um, it was about keeping the plane straight and it was about helping the pilot be able to guide the plane once it was in the air, and that was really the breakthrough. I think what we're seeing at the moment in, in the cryptocurrency space is that we're ignoring first principles, we're not going back to the, the source code, re examining and, and, and looking at it in a new way. We're actually going off on these tangents where we end up like becoming. Uh, right, we end up becoming mini tyrants you know I call them impotent tyrants that they hate it when I say that but you you you, you get these people sort of setting up these companies these corporate fictions they want to you know put all the sweat equity into it and then they want to be able to you know Make these dramatic videos, scrolly, scrolly, pumpy, pumpy websites. I keep calling them that. They're parallax designs where mm-hmm. you can scroll down the page, and they all look the same. And I'm like, "Where's your individuality? You know, why are you accepting the past as it's been given to you, letting the the, the past command over to you?" So, what Satoshi brings up very early on in the in the paper, is this idea that in order for for an object in the material reality to move, in order for a a dollar bill to to move from one person to the other, well, there has to be one history. It can't come from multiple different versions. It can't be that you got it off of one person or maybe you got it off another. No, no. It has to come from a single history. So before you can spend it, you have to first prove that you received it. And in order to prove that you received it, you have to say who you received it from. So all he's doing is he's trying to map into a digital sphere something, a reality, an underlying reality... That already exists in the material world. And I think it's that transposition. It's that conversion of understanding something in, in, in as it is in the material and then converting it and creating a translation. And you think about what TCP is, you think about, you know, and later on UDP and all of these different protocols. They're just naming conventions. Essentially, you're just mapping from one uh, layer of the, of the stack. You know, you have the, the, the hardware, the physics at the bottom, all the way up to the user with the operating system and applications in between it. You just need to be able to create these interfaces between the two. And I think that comes with an awful lot of dialogue, a lot of discussion, and an open mind with critical thinking. So I think that's how we overcome these revisionist historians, is we give everyone the independent capacity. In fact, I'd love to see, and I have already suggested informally on social media, this idea of teaching every five-year-old the basics of cryptographic primitives so that they can forever be never, ever, ever be lied to by adults again. So that, you know, you're giving them a base set of tools. If someone can engineer a game or some something for, for a very young person to be able to learn so that they understand what a, a cryptographic hash function is and they're able to go out and, and go onto Wikipedia and check for themselves, make the internet so ubiquitous or certainly the, the learning resources so ubiquitous that no tyrant would ever even bother to try because it'll be like whack a mole, you know. You might be able to repress one child, but you won't be able to repress them all. And so then whatever it is that wants to emerge is free to emerge, but you have to create a dialogue between the youth and the, the gerontocracy, the, the older um, people who are incumbent and they, they have all this wealth and they don't want to, to let it go. And I think we're not having that dialogue at the moment. I think at the moment, the older generations fear the young. I think they see them going off and doing some pretty crazy things that, that to them are anathema. And so they say, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to own all the property and I'm going to force the, the house prices up. So you can't afford to buy a home. And you know, you have to spend all your time with your mom and dad. And, and they're starving these children of experiences. And it's such a shame because look at how much they crave the experience. Look how much they talk about it on social media and they're photographing everything, documenting everything and celebrating that documentation with their friends. And now we have Bitcoin. Uh, we have money as media, money as information, money as entropy. Money is something that grows, but something that can be used to create a fertile future, because now anyone can send money to anyone across the world and can facilitate them in their goals and desires.
1: And that money is based on a secure timestamped database that in itself is creating an immutable history. Here's the interesting thing about the blockchain, which I find fascinating. The blockchain is immutable only. In retrospect and only after passage of time in that it really resembles a geological record a series of layers that have been embedded and compacted deeper and deeper in the earth and so the surface layer of the blockchain is actually very mutable in fact on average, every day, there is a fork event where two blocks are seen by different parts of the network as winning the current round, and that has to be reconciled over subsequent rounds until one of those blocks becomes the official record, the historical reality, and the other one is discarded by the network rewriting history. The surface layers like the surface layers in a geological structure, are disturbed and unsettled and swept by wind, if you like. But as you go deeper, things become more and more immutable, more and more solid. And these are reflected in the metrics we use for solidity. For example, six conformation, six blocks deep, you're just below the surface layer of the blockchain. That is considered the depth at which blocks have become solid enough that you can depend on them for transactional verification. But there are even deeper layers. If you create a new block and you earn reward on the blockchain, it doesn't become spendable until at least 100 blocks have elapsed. So the layer at which currency... Created in a Coinbase transaction in a block can enter circulation and be spent by that miner is a hundred blocks deep, and then below that you have the layers of ancient history, the periods, the historical periods of Bitcoin of the previous years, going all the way back to the Genesis block, buried some three hundred thousand blocks down. Mm and as immutable as it gets. And so, essentially, if you take a snapshot through time in the blockchain, it's like drilling out an ice core. And the stuff on the surface is slush. It represents the current year, the current season. It's full of artifacts. It's of an unexpected and uh, undetermined width. But as you go deeper into the ice core, and the layers are compacted, They are of a specific width to the point where you can timestamp them. You can derive chronological markers based on distance by measuring these layers and their depth. You can figure out which time period you're looking at, and you can then correlate that with specific events. You can see giant meteor strikes uh, that leave a thin layer of carbon which is present in geological structures all across the planet at a specific depth. And you can see all of these events and climate change and uh, seasonal variations and great ice ages played out in these layers as they go deep. And those are not changing, whether you drill here or there or elsewhere, or if you drill in the North Pole, or if you drill in the South Pole, if you drill on the equator certain things once you go beyond a certain depth you're looking at immutable history the blockchain is very similar to that and it's creating an interesting record of events as they happened with a very very high degree of certainty and immutability once you go below the surface but here's the interesting thing that's not the original meaning of history the idea of history as a recounting of events exactly as they happened is a modern construct it actually comes from the 15th century and as the word history was used in in the english language it's a story right that story is supposed to be a recounting of events in sequence and those who are interested in history are essentially documenting events as they occur in sequence. And there's this hidden assumption of history being valuable because of objectivity, in that history is only true if you recount the events exactly as they happened, with some sense of objectivity. But Here's the funny thing, that's not the original meaning of the word. The word history is Greek. It comes from ancient Greek. It means to judge and gain knowledge from inquiry. But history in the original language, the Greek language, is not just witnessing, it's judging. In the Greek antiquity and ancient Greek culture, history was not about objective fact. It was about extracting from the events of the past a narrative that provided a lesson for the future. And therefore, judgment and interpretation and narrative was more important than objective facts. This is seen in many ways in the era of mythology. And mythos is not history. Mythos is a cultural story, a parable, that describes a fictitious event which may have some parallels in actual people and places so you don't have that little disclaimer that says no actual people were mentioned here in fact greek mythology is is very much based on sparse historical facts here and there but its goal is not to recount the past its goal is to create a lesson it acts as a story that teaches us something so the heroes of greek mythology teach us about loyalty and betrayal and sacrifice. Uh, They teach us about human flaws and even projecting those human flaws and weaknesses onto the deities of the time who in Greek mythology and ancient Greek religion were extremely flawed, petty, vindictive, jealous, etc. In fact, those are their main characteristics. So you see this transition. You go from history that is about telling a story, and that story being more important than the actual facts. What are the lessons that can be drawn from that story? What does it teach the next generation? Does it teach them to be generous, magnanimous, self-sacrificing, brave in the face of danger, how they judge others, etc.? Those are the lessons that Greek mythology attempts to teach by showing the consequences of folly and the consequences of hubris and all of the frailties of the human experience. It's not about the facts. It's about what those facts teach the next generation about the future. So in that way, let's look at the idea of modern history, where we pretend that what we're trying to do is recount historical events and strip them of subjective judgment, and instead provide only an objective recounting of the events. But that's not really what actually happens. What happens is we still impose a subjective narrative, but we no longer pay too much attention as to what exactly we're trying to teach with that narrative. When you look at the invention of the automobile and its success with a narrative that presents it as a story of triumph of technology and man over nature, human ingenuity and manufacturing prowess and the great American promise of the era of industrialization, you're obscuring the parts of the story that are most interesting and actually provide some kind of guidance to the next generation as to how that generation should behave. It's still not objective because it's whitewashed, but now it's not only subjective, but the narrative that it's teaching is no longer focused on a specific goal. It's not teaching independent thought. It's not teaching perseverance in the face of adversity. It's not teaching ignoring the naysayers and persisting on your passion. It's not teaching all of those things. Instead, what it's teaching is that if you have a great idea, the world will recognize it. Hail you as a great inventor and lift you on their shoulders and celebrate your life. But that's not what actually happened. When the first cars came out, they were these infernal, dirty, stinky, unreliable, dangerous contraptions that only the rich played with, that were the, the purview only of weirdos and freaks and tinkers who were really not part of the civilized elite who used beautiful gilded carriages and well-mannered horses that were these beautiful beasts that had been bred through generations of good breeding. And these machines that were appearing in places where people were tinkering with these machines were not greeted as a great advance in technology that would solve lots of problems. People thought that the early automobile fanatics were dangerous and deranged. The cars were notoriously unreliable. They would break down all the time. The road infrastructure didn't exist. So cars had to use roads that were really never designed for cars, but for horses, and horses can step over boulders and obstacles. The early cars found a lot of difficulty navigating these roads, would often get stuck because, you know, where a horse can get a different foothold in mud, a car can't. They'd break down, they'd make a lot of noise, and most importantly, they'd kill pedestrians. And so what did the media focus on? They did these enormous sensationalized stories of pedestrian accidents and horrific car crashes. They'd mock the owners of automobiles as crazy idealists who were dabbling with this technology that would never succeed because it was too expensive and too complex, and there weren't the roads for it, and you couldn't buy gasoline anywhere, and in any case, were dirty and dangerous and would probably kill you and everyone around you. In that environment, the Red Flag Acts, the Locomotive Acts were passed In the United Kingdom in 1861, 1865, and 1878. And these represent the response to the fear mongering. These represent the perception of automobiles as dangerous machines. And they impose on the early automobile requirements that did not exist for other types of vehicles, but requirements that, in many cases, came to cripple the automotive industry in the UK, handing the lead to the American automotive industry. Here's one of those rules. Self-propelled vehicles should be accompanied by a crew of three, a driver, an engineer, and a flagman. If the vehicle was attached to two or more vehicles, an additional person was to accompany them and a man with a red flag walking at least 60 yards, 55 meters, ahead of each vehicle, required to assist with the passes of horses and carriages, and the vehicle is required to stop at the signal of the flag bearer, not exceeding a speed limit of 4 miles per hour or 2 miles per hour in towns. So here you have the early automobile, which encompassed a new spirit of independence and speed, speed that could exceed that of a pedestrian, and independence because it no longer required necessarily the keeping of horses and their schedule and their strength, but it gave you greater duration, greater endurance, greater distance, and complete independence at the hands of the operator, who could go anywhere they want with this vehicle. And now you stick a person in front of that vehicle and you make them run ahead with a red flag to warn pedestrians that an infernal death machine is following, one that will most surely kill them if it comes near them. And now you've limited this car to the speed of a pedestrian. And further, you've ceded half the control over where you're going to the person running ahead. And you've cemented the image in the mind of the people Of this thing as an exception, an intruder into the town's environment, an intruder into the road system, and one that must be treated with great fear. The flag acts, the locomotive acts, and the red flag act actually ended up delaying and severely limiting the development of the automotive industry in the UK. And so you see here how. This wasn't a rosy story. This wasn't a story of great success with this machine. Instead, they laughed at it, and they thought it was ex- extremely dangerous. Now, People who are in Bitcoin today recognize this narrative, right? It's a narrative that should lead to the idea that your response should be to persevere and ignore the naysayers, your response is to recognize that incumbents cannot possibly see where this technology can lead because they're trapped in the paradigm of incumbency. If you're a horse buggy manufacturer, cars are not only a threat, mostly they're a joke, mostly they're a far inferior form of transportation, and you can't possibly fathom why anybody would want to use them. We see the same, with technologies again and again. The early internet was treated in much the same way by telecom incumbents, first with ridicule, then with big backlash and fight, and with non-stop stories by the media as to how the internet was a den of thieves, pornographers, terrorists, and fraudsters who would surely rob you of your money. And even if you could bypass all of those threats, Then it was just a giant mountain of information where no one could find anything. That only weird, ponytailed geeks could operate. That was the narrative of the internet when I first joined it. And people were not thwarted by that. The, The story that came out of that should be of one of perseverance. But that's not the narrative that history provides. So history whitewashes... It pretends to be objective when we have this idea of objective history. We are still, however, providing a subjective narrative, only now we're not paying attention to what messages that narrative teaches.
0: magic word is mythos that's m-y-t-h-o-s mythos you've got until the 28th of november to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the letstalkbitcoin iphone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards
2: Governments don't innovate, almost by definition. Um, They maintain the status quo, and one of the defining characteristics, I would say, of of a parasite, they're not creative. Yeah, they're not visionary. They don't invent things. They wait and they wait and they wait, and then they see where the momentum's going among the sort of the 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 artistic class, and then once they realise the momentum has gone too far, it's a question of which government backs it first, which government. Says, okay, now how do I become parasitical on this new invention? And at the moment, it, it certainly feels like, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir when, of course, you, you you tell me all these things about the car, but it, it's almost like, um, we're driving with the brakes on. Yeah. There's this, there's this powerful invention that people like you and I and Turdemister has also talked about. It. He uses the analogy of oil and, and petrol and so on. It definitely feels like now that we have the big picture, now that we have. Uh, science, archaeology, anthropology, we have these uh, storytelling tools with their own internal consistencies, that is, you know, citations to other papers, that it becomes a web of trust. It's almost like the individual now looks at the government and thinks, what are you for? I mean, sure, I get that there are services and, and things like this, but since most of you are outsourcing this to private firms anyway, why don't we just call a spade a spade? What are you for? And I'm not even talking about the governments necessarily, about the politicians, the career politicians, who really all they do is sit around and posture all day. Right? What does a politician actually fundamentally do? What are they for? I look at most of them and I just think, all you talk about is your relationship to power. The, the interviews that you give in the press, you, you fudge all the questions, you just stay on message through the whole thing. And everything you say is couched in terms of your position in power. Either you're fighting off an external threat or you're fighting off an internal threat through through your own party lines, which is usually where they spend most of their time defending themselves. As a result, I'm like, why do we give these people all this attention? What is the point in you? I don't think politics is the best tool to overcome a lot of the challenges that we face going into the future. I believe in engineers. I believe in people, not governments, not politicians. It's people that take the time to learn for themselves. Now, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning about mythos and logos. And I want again to cite Robert Harrison, who, if he ever listens to, Mark, to these interviews, I hope that he's forgiving. And, you know, he, he's inspired me so much. So he has a book called uh, Forest, the Shadow of Civilization. And he brings up this notion of storytelling in ancient Greece. Because, of course, the ancient Greeks didn't have an objective history, they had myth, they had storytelling that was told by the Homerics and, and, and Hesiod, of course. These kind of stories. And he says, look, at some point, the mythos, the myth, gives rise to a logos, the word, or actually also shared etymon with logos is leg. So it actually means something like to gather. And so you have these kind of storytellers, in particular, Cleisthenes, um, who is very erudite and very well read. And he was, you know, he was this benevolent aristocrat of, of, of ancient Athens. And his response to the emergence of the mob. Was to come up with democracy, uh, demos, kratos, um, many power, power to the people. It's, it's slightly different to the notion. I forget the Greek word. Perhaps you can enlighten me. It's, um, it's something like self ownership. There's, there's, there's two of these juxtaposed concept, concepts where what he's, what he's trying to devise here is a way where we can agree on our, what we disagree about. So he says, what is the condition that I can give you where you will be happy to not sort of go out and, and start burning everything and, and, and running around like a mob? What is the one thing you will settle on? And, and initially that was majority rule. Now that worked at the time and many political theorists now when they teach politics in, in schools will tell the students that actually this, this ancient Greek uh, particularly with sortition where you didn't know whether or not you were going to get elected because it was somewhat random there was an element of randomness added into the selection process of the, of the leaders and what that did is it this was like a perfect period of history where you had the right balance between nature and humanity and necessity and consciousness nature is was defined as um, fusis by aristotle as uh, that which contained its own sort of direction if you like that it, that it that it moved on its own and then you had anima uh, de anima in his book on the soul which was, the soul is something that creates movement. And so you'd always have this kind of relationship between nature, that which was deterministic and necessary, and then consciousness, that which had the the ability to reflect on itself, the ability to almost pull away. Like the artist Martin Creed has this great sentence and quote in his his latest exhibition where it says, uh, your work plus the world equals the world. That you respond to what is in nature, and then you return to the world, and what you return with makes the world. Yeah? And so when, when we're talking about revisionist history, we have to, I, I actually don't see I think governments are on a limited time span. I just don't see with the prevalence of information across the world, governments being able to sustain their existence for very much longer. That's why I'm so interested in this space. It's why I listen to you and, and a lot of these other sort of anarchist thinkers. It's not because I'm political, actually, I'm apolitical. It's just I'm very curious, and I'm 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 wanting to learn more. So anyway, back to, to, to Robert Harrison's notion. What he does that I think it would be very productive for us to do is to go back to early sort of caveman philosophies. In fact, that's where we left off in our first um, in our first uh, broadcast together on this show. And one of the things that he brings up in in his book Forests is uh, John Batista Bico who has this idea of poetic wisdom. You know, in the Enlightenment period, we had this idea of noble savages, um, this idea that man, before he became civilised, was somehow to some noble savage in the forest. I'm a, bit, I'm a little bit sceptical about this. In fact, I'm a little bit sceptical about the Enlightenment period in general. I think it was a, a bit of a misstep in, in human um, learning and development. I, I also happen to think that the Enlightenment period was in part responsible for fascism and fascism being a reaction to the mistakes that were made in thinking during the enlightenment period this this rejection of the idea that, that man is uh, irrational most of the time that we make perfect utility-based decisions you know Hitler wants to say something like well doesn't he doesn't isn't in the script at the end of the downfall in that film you know where he says we're just animals we're just animals that's how you identify by the way a fraud if you're in a company and you're at the mercy of a tyrant one of the things that people said to me the most when I was doing my research on com- you know in employment in companies was They described their bosses as fascists, yeah. Every that was the most common keyword that would come up in my research was my boss is a fascist. And it's almost as if there was a certain failure of thinking around the time of the Enlightenment. This is what gives rise, I think it's what gives rise to the Constitution. What ended up happening was Hitler came around and and Mussolini and they said, No, no, we are going to merge the intentions of the state and the corporation. We are gonna corporatism. I think what happened was the West looked at this and went, sure, I like the idea, but not you. It won't be you that institutes this. And it won't be this idea of you, you stick to where you are and everyone else sticks to where they are. You know, Hitler had this line about the Mongols and they should just stay to their territory and the Aryans should stick to their territory. I think what the West did is they, I think they were kind of, this is going to be massively controversial. I hope I get trolled for saying this, but It's almost like the West were enamoured and bewitched by this idea of top-down control. And what they did is they distributed fascism throughout this sort of corporatocracy that we ended up with, where anyone could be a little tyrant. Like It does a deal with you where it says, look, if you leave me alone as a tyrant, I will let you have your dirty little corner over there, and you can tyrannise those people and people will work for you because they want freedom. And the only way they can get freedom is by spending our money, our currency that we're going to issue with them by fiat. We're going to say, this is it. And we are going to, as a government, masquerade as the universe itself. We're going to pretend like we are the final word. Um, And I think what Robert Harrison does so well is he goes back to the fundamental root causes. And I want to bring into this discussion the idea that we should go back into that early prototypical thinking And work out where we went wrong. Where did this project fork? Where did we start going wrong? Because clearly where we are at the moment isn't fit for purpose. Our models don't describe the underlying nature of reality. Our databases do not describe the universe, right? The problem is you have this law of conservation in physics. Yeah. And the second law of thermodynamics, the entropy always increasing. It's the statistically, at least it's the law we're most sure of. And the problem is if you're allowed. To change an entry in a database and the only condition on which that state can transition is based on some guy having the root access to that part uh, to that database you're going to come unstuck really quickly because it, that database will no longer describe what actually happened. What Bitcoin introduces is a different type of state transition rule for this database it says you can only transition the state of this database if you have the keys to the particular coinbase of all the coins that are in your wallet and only if you can produce the most energy. In fact, it's it's not just the longest chain that will be accepted as truth. It's actually the one with the most combined difficulty. So we will accept as truth whichever chain... You talked about the forking event. So yes, that's correct. And and particularly coins with um, short um, block times have more forks. The fork that we will agree on is the one that required the most combined energy. Why? Because frauds will always operate on a minimum expenditure, maximum return model. They will Mm -hmm. always put in the least amount of work for the maximum effort. And this is how we starve out the the psychopath, the the, the parasite. We starve them out by presenting a protocol. Protocol means proto, uh, means before the meeting. Yes. We we agree before we meet. This is how we're going to do things. And you define a protocol. A protocol is a structure, um, as a a clearly defined emergent set of rules that people agree with over, over space and time. That's how we know they're true. And then we say, these are the rules. And either you play by the rules or the system itself repels you. The system itself makes you perish under your own weight. You walk into this system as a, as a, as a parasite and you just dissolve within that system. Hopefully, we either starve them out and let them go you know, somewhere else and maybe they can start you know, conning each other for, in, in, instead of the, the you know, good people or hardworking people, honest people. Or we turn the bad into the good. You know, somehow they they think actually I prefer the rules of this game, but I, st- I still think we need to be a bit careful because the, the problem is if you get too comfortable, then you end up becoming yourself at the mercy of the black swan. If you like, I think it's, it's uh, someone brought this up on the developer mailing list the other day, the Bitcoin developer mailing list, this idea that we still have to trust proof of work. Yeah. You're never in a completely trustless environment. And I think it, it's worth paying attention to our weaknesses in our own philosophies and our own arguments. And by we, I mean, you know, you, me and and, and other people that are sympathetic to the blockchain and its uh, principles.
1: Right now, we're seeing this environment in which we're operating with cryptocurrencies where the response in the broader media is following a very predictable path. And that is that the narrative of bitcoin is fitted into the existing paradigm and where bits don't fit those are chopped off through a framing context that takes certain things for granted that makes certain assumptions certain normative conclusions about what is true and what is not true and these assumptions frame the context in which bitcoin is discussed and i've seen this happen many times in conversations i've had For example, recently a journalist asked me if central banks set the value of currency and Bitcoin doesn't have a central bank, how can we trust that the value of currency is set correctly? And just in that sentence, you see the framing context, which starts with an assumption that central banks set the value of currency. And then asks, based on that context, well, where is your guarantee of value if you don't have a central bank? And the problem with that kind of question is that the only answer you can give is to challenge the assumption behind it, which is, how exactly do central banks set the value of a currency? That is a very bold statement. In fact, it's a statement for which there is very little factual evidence, and all of the evidence currently points to exactly the opposite. Central banks tweak interbank overnight lending rates in order to affect changes in behavior of consumption through supply and demand biasing for other loans that will change... Import, export, and trade, as well as investment and return, expansion or consolidation of investment, that will eventually reflect in the purchasing power of that currency, which markets will incorporate into their models, and as a result, when that currency is traded, its value will be affected up or down. That is very, the reality is very, very different from a straightforward statement of central banks set the value of currency. Uh, I would say that statement is on its face false. That's the context in which our technology is being discussed. So it's not just the state creating history. It's also um, the incumbent system, the existing paradigm, has established certain assumptions as part of an everyday narrative that is shared by millions of people who are part of the banking infrastructure, the finance infrastructure, the media that cover these organizations, the institutions that supposedly oversee these organizations, and even their customers, the everyday buyers, consumers, depositors, investors, Small investors and individuals who interact with these things have essentially assumed a narrative, assumed a set of facts that um, are really not in evidence, that uh, do not have a basis in fact, but instead are a suitable narrative and a fiction that is convenient, right? The idea that central banks set value, the idea that government currencies have stability, the idea that government currencies are backed by something, the GDP of the nation, uh, by force of arms, by gold. In many cases, you'd be surprised how how common it is among people to assume that their currency is still backed by some kind of commodity. And all of these assumptions are either immediately demonstrably false or statistically have very little basis other than a few exceptions point in time the vast majority of fiat-based currencies eventually devolve into a smoking pile of ruins as hyperinflation takes takes place that's how most currencies end if you look at the numbers you would have to deduce that fiat-based currencies always end in a slag heap of market destruction because of hyperinflation. But that's not the narrative that exists out there. And then when you introduce an innovation like Bitcoin, it requires you to question those very assumptions. And it's very difficult to question those very assumptions. This isn't a function of government creating history or narrative. This is a function of an entire society being subsumed or being raised in that narrative. Taking that as objective truth, assuming certain base assumptions that provide a context and a framework for making all future judgments, and then taking those as true regardless of the evidence otherwise. And that is not new. That is not a failure of society today or something that happened recently or an expression of fascism. This is how culture has always worked. And every single very disruptive, very different change or innovation, artifact, technology, culture that has been introduced into a rigid paradigm has faced enormous pushback from society in general because it violates these cherished assumptions. And eventually, if in fact that invention is powerful and can affect change. It piles up enough evidence that the difference, the discord between the evidence and the assumptions becomes too great to bear, and there is a discontinuity. There is a, su- a sudden shift in cultural acceptance and a new paradigm is formed. That is the history of technology, that is the history of innovation, that is the history of science. At some point, enough evidence piles up that the entire system tilts and suddenly shifts, and a new paradigm emerges, whether that's Galileo, or Einstein, or Edison, and Ford. And the resistance of a culture to this disruptive change it's not a function of fascism, in my opinion, unless we're talking about that as some kind of primordial mentality that has existed throughout time. It's, but it is more simply a matter of simplification. As a culture, we cannot know about every detail of every field. So what we do is we simplify through narratives, and those narratives inform our future judgments. And put us in a framework and a paradigm where it's very difficult to accept things that are radically different from what we expect. The black swan event, as described by Nicholas Nassim Taleb, the black swan event that he describes has two different distinct phases. The first one is that a black swan exists, and the assumption is that it doesn't, because no black swan has been seen before. And the first part is, is the objective truth, which is that despite the fact that all you've ever seen are white swans, there exists a possibility that a swan may be black. And when that black swan emerges, it will disrupt any model that assumes that only white swans exist. But here's the other part that perhaps he doesn't talk about as much. At first, when people are presented with a black swan, they will not accept the evidence of their own eyes. And that's been documented throughout history. Now, in the case of a very, very tangible near-field experience with an actual black swan, it will be hard to ignore the visual evidence. So people will most likely say that the swan has been painted or died. Mm-hmm. But we have much better examples of complete society-wide delusions or even perception illusions that occur when something is so disruptive to the existing status quo. For example, there are stories of the arrival of the great ships of the explorers in the Americas, people on the shore Trying to persuade their fellow villagers that there is a great big thing out there on the water and the other villagers being unable to see it. And they're unable to see it because the cognitive part of their visual cortex is unable to process the image of a large wooden structure floating out there uh, because that thing is completely incongruous with their experience. So, Even though it's right there, and even though some members of the tribe can see it, other members of the tribe won't believe them, because their ability to perceive what is actually there is limited. So this is the other aspect of the black swan event, that even when you're presented with clear evidence of a black swan, most people find it very difficult to accept. And that applies to a range of issues, right? If you've been told that the economy is fundamentally solid, then you will discount any evidence of uh, fragility in the economy until it's inevitable, until it's collapsing in front of your very eyes, and you cannot further argue that it's still solid. But up to the very last minute, you will discount all evidence to the contrary, because it doesn't match the model. The danger of this is that it works both ways. Right. So within the community of Bitcoin, you can be in an environment where you cannot accept the very basic flaws that exist within our system because you discount those possibilities. So these biases apply both ways. Now, we know that the overall banking and finance paradigm out there is having a great deal of difficulty digesting Bitcoin because it is blind to the possibilities, because it cannot fit it into the existing context, because it breaks the mold. But at the same time, we've got to beware That the opposite effect also holds true. Or as Carl Sagan says, they laughed at Christopher Columbus, but they also laughed at Bozo the clown. And you've got to be very sure that when you're discounting other people's laughter at you, that you are in fact Christopher Columbus and not Bozo the clown. I think the lesson that comes from our understanding of the history of disruptive innovation is that in the face of laughter, you should not be discouraged. You should not assume that what you're doing is wrong, but you should certainly question and try to establish within your own context whether you are Christopher Columbus or you are Thomas Edison or you are a pioneer in a new disruptive field, not to go narcissistic and say that we are the greats, but whether you are in fact right about a technology that is amazing and has incredible potential, or potentially you are trading magic beans and are of the Clown.
2: Let's look at what time is. now. A lot of people have this misconception of time as just being a straight line. I mocked some of the physicists earlier for thinking of this reductionist arrow of time. Think of history as an engine, desire sinking into the past or sinking into the, to the memory in order to get to wherever it wants to go. So often what you find is that people already have preconditioned ideas of where they want to go based on their intentions and their desires. And then they will go to the corpus, the history, and they will work up a narrative that is convenient to get them there as the justification. In fact, in criminology, you have this idea about opportunity, ability, and rationality as being the three preconditions on which someone will commit a crime. They have to have the ability, the opportunity, and then they have to be able to rationalise, justify to themselves why they're doing it, and anticipate themselves getting away with it. And so, you can actually broaden it out, not just in the criminal mind, but there's something fairly criminal, I think, about the the about the innovator, yeah, but like this Prometheus kind of character that comes down and gives us the gift of fire, but oh no, it's a one-way process. We're never going back again. So think about history in those terms. History is in front of us as well as behind us. We have to go to the past to get to the future, to weave out that present moment. That's why I Often and repeatedly refer to this present-centric notion of time as well as the, the arrow of time. The arrow of time and the narrative is something that we produce, what Heidegger called world time, which is just where you plot the charts. And I recommend um, um, websites like histropedia.com, which allows you to form timelines based on Wikipedia articles automatically. There's also Time Glider. There are various other websites that allow for this collaborative narrative construction. Where it's peer to peer narrative, I highly encourage that. Now, as a word of warning, I don't want us to focus too much. You're absolutely right in everything you say. There's nothing there that, in what you said that I disagree with. But I would add to construct a bit on top of it: is this this notion of the apath, you know, apathy? The apath is someone who who makes way and creates fertile ground for the psychopath, the pathology. Yeah. The reason why these bankers exist and the reason, and of course, I don't mean all bankers, I'm sorry, I, I take that back. I mean, the, the people within the banking sector that are parasitical on the system as a whole, the reason they exist is because we let them exist. It's because we, we let them get away with it. They shout at you and then you, two days later, you think up a, you know, a great comeback and you, you dream and, and counterfactualize all the different things you could have said in the moment. But we lack that courage in the moment to really express ourselves fully and say, you know, what I used to do towards the end, and I was was always a big coward, you know, when I was at the mercy of these bosses, but I would towards the end, I'd start videoing them and I'd start recording them and I'd start turning their outbursts, this impotent rage that would just come out and shout and scream and this automatic claim to authority that I just didn't feel was justified. I'd start filming it and I'd start documenting it and I'd start turning it into artwork collages and like, Look at this person. Look at this outburst. You know, I deserve this money. You know, I, I deserve this fast car. And it's like, well, no, you don't. I'm sorry, but you know, we've had a recession. You're not going to get the same income that you were before. You're just, you're realizing that the, the world doesn't give you that anymore. Now, I think what would make us a lot stronger as a community within cryptocurrency is if we listen to the critics, unlike what the psychopaths do, yeah? And I think we should be listening, for example, to people like uh, Isabella Kaminska, the the Financial Times, who often rails against the Bitcoin community for being this monomaniacal, you know, driven, idealistic, driven. You know, blockchain is truth. Blockchain is the dictator. Um, She she says a lot of really smart things, and I think people like her, and and there are others. uh, Maybe you can think of some more people that are that are critical of Bitcoin, but in an intelligent way. Who have some really good points to make, and think Peter Todd can be like that. You know, perhaps he is is a good internal critic because he's often very disputational, and I love I love him for that because I know that if I run an idea by him, I will just be able to tell from his face <laughs> whether it's worth pursuing or whether it's a, it's it's a bad idea. And of course, you you are another great example. I think we should be conscious and self-critical, but also we share. A vision. I think we have a very different vision of how the resources should be shared. You know, who should get the money, the the land, the guns. You know, the time to bring their ideas into fruition, into the reality. So, that, you know that, that would be that that would be my input. We've got to learn from the enemy and not be apathetic. We we've got to take the risk. stop pointing at the at the governments and the, and, the, and the bankers. Yes, I know it's very enjoyable and I enjoy it too, but we've got to look at ourselves and we've got to ask now what. Given that we know this, given that we're sharing these stories and these
0: insights, what do we do with it now? Thanks for listening to episode 165 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos and Chris Ellis. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.